0: This is a Washington Post Live podcast from the Global Women's Summit with presenting
1: sponsors AARP, Boston Consulting Group, and Volvo. You're listening to Conversations from Washington Post Live's 2022 Global Women's Summit, featuring leaders and trailblazers from around the world.
0: Good afternoon. I'm Frances as a senior writer here at The Washington Post. I'm joined now by Lynn Carrigan and Angela Romero, who are here to talk about holding power to account in religious institutions, and a very warm welcome to you both, Lynn and Angela. Thank you. I want to start, Lynn, by asking you um, about, we we'll are hearing on this video, a little bit about clergy privilege, and what sets clergy apart
1: from teachers and other people
0: in terms of reporting
1: abuse? Well, The law recently has had a very strong movement to mandate reporting of child abuse because it's such a terrible problem, teachers, doctors, um, anyone who has care of a child, Mm -hmm. and it's only recently that clergy were mandated reporters of child abuse, and what that did is create a contradiction because there's been a long, you know, thousand-year history, particularly in the Catholic Church and others, where um, a confession is supposed to be confidential and secret, so that's what people generally think of as clergy privilege. You keep the, the confession secret. However, what it really is, um, that what the law really says now, is clergy, because they, they're the closest to the children. They're the closest to the family. They know what's going on. They have a duty to, to care for the souls of the children and their welfare. So they do have a legal duty to report, or else it's a crime. Clergy can, can be accused of a crime. It's a class six felony. But it's not happening? But what happens is there's a very tiny little, skinny little loophole that says if it's a confession or a confidential communication or something they can dress up in church language, they can keep child abuse a secret to prevent scandal. And the, the- The problem I have with this is there is no law that says they have to keep it a secret. The law says they have to report it unless they decide to stand on some moral ground of protecting the penitent soul and keeping it a secret. Now, frankly, that's a moral decision they make. It's their only defense to a crime. And I think it's a loophole that needs to be done away with. So, Angela, there you
0: are working in Utah, and congratulations, I think you've just been re-elected. Yeah. (laughs) And one of your um, main issues has been trying to change this legislatively. How central was that to your recent campaign, and how optimistic are you about moving ahead, when Utah, I think, is one of 33 states that have this loophole?
2: I'm, I'm very optimistic. When I first was elected in 2012, I was able to pass a child sex abuse bill, it was HB 286, with the help of Elizabeth Smart and DeAndre Brown, right. who are child sex abuse survivors. And when I passed that bill, and I'm a Democrat, just let everyone know, and I'm not <laughs> of the predominant religion either. And when I was able, as a Democrat, because we're very small there, we're the super minority, I was able to pass that bill and everyone asked me, how did you do that? And I'm like, hard work and you know, educating my colleagues. And so I started to get handed over all the sexual assault and child sex abuse bills. And in 2017, I passed HB 200, which mandates the testing of all sexual assault kits. And Utah is one of eight states that no longer has backlog. And all the survivors I've been working with on legislation for, for years now asked me to run this bill. So in 2020, I filed the bill. And I didn't realize what a storm I was in a cause. And I didn't realize I was in a on Bill Donahue's um, <laughs> frequent um, email list server to fundraise for the, um, the Catholic um, League. And I didn't realize that my own church and my own family would be really frustrated with me. I didn't realize that You're, my your own... Your family's Catholic? Yes, I'm... You're both Catholic. We're both That's Catholic. Right. So. And um, I didn't realize that the, the bishop of my diocese would ask everyone in church to send the Speaker of the House letters about not, you know, not letting this bill be heard and so um, when we had this conversation, and the Salt Lake Tribune, which is a local newspaper, asked people would they want people to be, um, clergy to report, majority of Utah said yes. And I think majority of the people across the country would say yes as well. And so for me, this is about power structures. Mm. This is about power structures not protecting children. And as a policymaker, I was elected to represent all people. And children are the most vulnerable. And a lot of times they don't have a voice. And so I'm not worried about Uncle Bob getting some jail time and maybe help. I'm worried about the small child who isn't believed because they go to somebody and then that person goes to their spiritual advisor or the perpetrator goes to their spiritual advisor and they say what they're doing and it's not stopped because it's protected under this confidential privilege.
0: So Lynn, I mean this is clearly intensely personal and you've taken you've taken on these battles as well that are very very meaningful for you. How broad a problem do you think this is? You're fighting a battle right now I think in it's,
1: Arizona but where, what are we talking about? Utah or? It's a nationwide country? problem and the problem is is most people think that clergy do have the right? I mean, most people think that clergy have to keep it secret. That is not true. And it's just simply not true. And I don't understand a church, either Mormon or Catholic or any church, that thinks it's in their best interest to keep this a secret. Because at this day and age, everyone knows that that sex abuse is an addiction. You don't have, like in my case, well, I won't go into the facts of all the different cases I've had, but people just don't wake up one day and start molesting their children. They've had a... It just doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't go away. They keep doing it, and so getting counseling doesn't help. Going to your priest doesn't help, and going to your Mormon bishop doesn't help. You can't counsel away raping your child. You just can't, and um, the clergy privilege, and the problem with, with all the recent appointees, the federal appointees, is they've really been confusing what the First Amendment is. Churches like to say they have this First Amendment right Mm -hmm. to do whatever they want, basically, but one of them is to conceal sex abuse, and it makes absolutely no sense that you have a First Amendment right to conceal sex abuse, but the child has no right to be free from rape. It it just makes no sense. So, so Angela. In pushing this legislation, you had a lot of pushback against you, and some of it was saying you were
0: allowing government to interfere with religious institutions. How do you respond to that?
2: What's the argument back? I've been working on sexual assault for a long time, and so I'm not very popular with a, a cer- certain segment of the population. And it, it, I guess it, got, it was a little hurtful when I had my own family asking me not to run the piece of legislation because... I was um, attacking um, confession, which is a sacrament of reconciliation. And I, I just don't really see it that way because I think about our child sex abuse rates in Utah and our sexual assault rates in Utah and they're higher than the national average. And in Utah, um, we can't pass comprehensive sex education. So everything is kind of hush-hush. And so for me, I've always looked at this from a victim perspective and so that that individual can get help because we have so many people walking around our country right now who are, are um, survivors of child sex abuse. And they've never received the help that they need to deal with the trauma and so you see a lot of hurt people, and you see them put, get put in other situations where they're re-traumatized because we never believed them, and we didn't get them the help and the services they need. We always are helping people who um, are the perpetrator. Um, you know, We spend millions and millions and millions of dollars in Utah and across the country on rehabilitating people. And I'm not saying we don't need to rehabilitate people, but we forget about the people that are left behind the community and how it impacts the entire family. And many times we're worried about protecting another parent or again, Uncle Bob, but we're not thinking about what we're doing to that child and what we're gonna do for generations. And so for me, um, the legislation I run has always been survivor-focused and trauma-informed because a lot of times people are like, why do we talk about these issues in government? I'm like, because we have to. We have to set these rules and these guidelines and we have to hold people accountable they'll right. continue to re So holding
0: people accountable, which is really what you're trying to do, Lynn, and I think you have a case right now against the Mormon church. How does that compare, and you can just outline it briefly, with taking on the Catholic church,
1: which you've done in the past? Wow. I think. <laughs> you know, it was interesting. Taking on the Catholic church, it, it was difficult. It was very powerful. They have a lot of money. But frankly, they had a sense of shame. <laughs> and I think that they really wanted to do the right thing eventually. Maybe it's because I come from that background but they came to a point where they were willing to compensate the victims and say they were wrong. And what I find with the Church of Latter-day Saints is it's like litigating against Exxon they're incredibly powerful, they're, it's, it's like global capitalism. And what they care about, in my mind, is making sure that they don't lose tithing. Because I have gotten so many calls from members of the church who are just heartbroken about the fact their church says, I mean, it's, it's really sad to see people lose their faith. It's sort of like a ripple effect of abuse. And um, they're very sad because they, they love their church and when they hear their church saying, our first duty is to the penitent, we did the right thing by not reporting this abuse for seven years. We have our first duty is to the perpetrator, not to the child. We didn't do anything wrong where we, they, they knew that this girl was being molested for seven years. They, they said they didn't care. And so what happens is you just get these people who are just heartbroken. And they want to, and, and what I think that the Mormon Church is more concerned about is scandal and losing tithing than anything else. And it, it's more like a business to me.
0: And we should just add here that we did reach out, and that the Church of Latter Day Saints declined to comment in advance of this, um, but did, has issued a statement in the past condemning um, child abuse. I think when a previous article uh, ran, but this gets me to another point, Angela, about being a woman and taking on these hierarchical institutions, which are often very patriarchal as well. How does that work?
2: I, I guess I want to point out I was born in Twelly, Utah. I'm not of the predominant religion, I'm, I'm a woman of color. And so I've always kind of been on the outside looking in, and even though I'm an elected official now and I have some power, I, I, I guess I understand that that outside view. So for me, this is, this is really nothing new because this is something I've had to grow up with all my life, whether it was because of my religion or because of who I was. Um, I've always kind of been on the outside. So I guess I've always been committed to being that, um, that's the Catholic in me, the social justice activist. I don't participate in my church anymore. But um, it, it's always to make sure that you're being a voice for the voiceless. And so as a policymaker and as a Democrat in Utah, my this is why I focused on these issues, because I want to make sure that that voice is there. I want to make sure that seat is at the table and that there's somebody speaking up for people that can't speak up for themselves. And so as long as I'm elected, I'll continue to do this. I'll continue to push this bill. I do have some hope. Um, our governor did talk about Maybe we should do something. I have a couple of colleagues who who have filed my bill. And I don't really need the recognition. I just want the bill to happen. And so my hope is that the bill will actually have a hearing this session. It won't be buried in rules. And um, we'll actually have an honest conversation. And so I, I really look at this as an institutional problem. And within these religious institutions and these structures, they're just trying to protect themselves from being sued. And um, I know there are a lot of good people within these faiths, but we as a society need to stop protecting people because we're afraid of getting sued or afraid of perception because we're, we're still damaging people. And um, who knows who these individuals could be if they were protected from that perpetrator. Yeah, and you
0: gave such a great phrase of giving the voice to the voiceless, which is exactly, Lynn, what you're trying to do. Tell us a little bit more about this current lawsuit and what plaintiffs, I mean, we can't undo what happened to people? Well,
1: you know, what really struck me is yeah. the talk earlier about women in prison. Yeah, So many of my clients have ended up, I mean, the, the, the perpetrators end up in prison and then the victims end up in prison or on the streets. And it's such an exponential growth problem that um, I don't know why it's not addressed either by the legislature. And frankly, I'm very grateful to the press for covering this because the one thing that scares religious institutions is you all, journalists. (laughs) They're (laughs) terrified. (laughs) And so they're not afraid of me. (laughs) They're not even afraid of paying money, but they are really (laughs) afraid of you all. And I really appreciate the more you cover these issues, the more important it is.
0: Yeah, we're laughing about the power. That's another form of power, right? But these are such serious issues, and we're talking about children, and and you're saying they're ending up in prison. Tell me, just as a follow-up, what you learn about the fate of these young people.
1: Well, they're varied, if they're, they're varied fate, but but um, they have lifelong problems. So when they say this is a money grab or they shouldn't get money, these are people who stress out at every phase of their life when they hit puberty, when they have children, when they get married. They have no faith or trust in any institution. I mean, you wake up in the morning, and you think, oh, sun's out, it's a nice day. Mm-hmm. I mean, these kids wake up and they're like, what's gonna happen to me next? Who is gonna get me? Every time I love someone, there's a duality. I love them; they abuse me. It's they're just a it's it's an ongoing problem that needs an enormous amount of support. And some
0: have been adopted. Just one more follow up, right? That you followed after.
1: Yeah. And how have they done? Um, they've they've done some. Some are well. They're, they have problems, but they're doing all right. What the, what the oldest one is very appreciative of is the public support. I mean, she was uh, she was surprised that there was public support for her case, but. I really can't talk about them too much. They're, yeah. they're, they're little kids. Right. And, but they're, they're doing all right. They, have, they were very, very lucky to have um, families who adopted them. And it was a heartbreak for the one family who adopted the youngest because they were very strong Mormons, very strong. And they left the faith. And um, it was a heartbreak for them to leave their community. But they've been excellent parents to this little
0: girl. Angela we've sort of I want to bring this around full circle a little bit but get back to this issue do you now believe that confession should be protected? That oh, speech a with question.
2: a <laughs> should be. I, I don't when it, when it comes to people who are sexually abusing children and I really do. I do not it was really interesting I so Texas was one of the states that has oh. closed the loophole and when Bill Donahue was advertising my name across the the country and I was getting all my hate mail and, um, you know, he told people I was um, pro-choice, which is true. I, I believe abortion is self-care. And I was getting all these phone calls. I had a young man call me from Texas and tell me how despicable I was. And he was gonna call me every day until I answered my phone. And I, I sent him a text message, you know, because it's technology, and I said, hey, I'm just gonna refer this voicemail to Highway Patrol. So the next day, his, um, that's our, our, our police, So the next day his grandma emails me and told me she was sorry her grandson had sent me that, uh, left me that voicemail and he was a good boy, but he just really cared about his faith. And so it it just shows how, what people are willing to do to protect an institution. And how we're willing to threaten people because they're trying to do the right thing. And so as a policymaker, we have to be brave. And sometimes we have to have that brave faith. And even if we're standing alone, someone has to stand up for those individuals that have no voice. So I will continue to be me, and I will continue to take those phone calls and have them put in my file, because I'm not gonna stop being who I am because people are threatening me for doing the right thing.
0: What you just said is such a message for this whole day. We have to continue to be brave, and thank you both so much for your courage. I'm afraid that's all we have time for, but let and Anja, Thank you.
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find more conversations from our Global Women's Summit by searching Washington Post Live wherever you listen. Visit WashingtonPostLive.com to register for upcoming programs.